0: yeah, let's snow. Let's have snow instead. That'd be good. Let's pray, and then we'll jump into it this morning. Uh, so, Lord, thank you so much. Thank you for these people, this, this uh, people we have gathered here this morning, this family. Um, we just want to hear from you. We want to love you, Lord. Uh, we want to learn, learn about what you have for us, and, and just listen to you, God. I, I don't. <sighs> That's all we want, Lord. We want to hear from you. We want your spirit. We want your presence, God. Uh, more than anything else in life, Lord. We, th- we, we thirst for you, we hunger for you. Holy Spirit, would you, would you come into this place, Lord? Would you encourage us in your word and build us up, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Ah, oh, Okay, great. Hey, one thing about Family Fun Night. It's not just for people with little kids. Yeah, yeah. Family Fun Night's gonna be, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's the spirit, Danielle. Danielle's got the spirit back there. Family Fun Night, is not just like, it's like, everybody's family. You know, we're all family, so we're going to come. And there's going to be some very special things at Family Fun Night. <laughs> We've been having fun kind of um, planning the Family Fun Night. So I would recommend that you not miss it, particularly uh, on the 5th. And then there's the worship night, too. Another thing not, not to miss this, this upcoming Thursday. So anyways, good morning. Glad to have you guys here. Those of you guys online, Welcome. Some of you people are traveling this week, so that's awesome. Um, And you brave people, you just keep coming back. You keep coming back, and I so appreciate it as we've been making our our way through this series called um, Good News for Everybody. Um, And the cleverness has worn off now, Uh, but you know, it was clever at one point, like a little bit. Um, and our aim throughout this series has been to just, just open up the Bible and to just, just explore the ways that the, the gospel, that is the good news of Jesus' birth, death, death, resurrection, his plan for us, um, is, impacts our, our bodies, particularly when it comes to uh, sexuality and how we practice our you know, sex lives. You know, I'm not, it's not a surprise that Christians talk about these things. We're sort of known for it, uh, having views on these things. And so nobody's really particularly surprised by all this stuff. But I think if you grow up in the church, kind of like I did, we, we just kind of think we think lots of things. And we know lots of things about what the Bible says, and we just go, yeah, yeah, sure, we know, we know. And sometimes we do them, and sometimes we don't, and sometimes we think they're good, and sometimes we think they're a drag. Um, we feel like a lot of things about this stuff. Um, and that's okay, and my, my hope here is just that we could just talk about what's in here, what's in the, in the Scriptures, because we t- want to take the Scriptures seriously uh, and just, just think about it, just think about it. That's all we're doing today, just thinking a little bit out loud. Um, and up to this point, we've just been doing like a broad overview of the topic, um, but today we're just going to turn, we're going to take a turn and we're going to get like a little bit specific about particular issues. Uh, concerns, issues, because as you can imagine, there are certain issues that come up uh, when we start to explore what the Bible teaches about sex. And this morning, we're just going to be talking about, I think, a really important one, and that's just singleness. What does it mean, and what's the call of a person to be single, and uh, to be, you know, as as we're going to explore here, also to be celibate, because that's kind of implied in the uh, historic Christian sexual ethic. Uh, we've, we looked at that a couple weeks ago. It's kind of summed up in this little statement that I've got up here. I'm not even going to reread it again. But like, this is sort of a, a, a composite sketch of the Bible's kind of teachings about sex. And, and one of the, uh, the unsurprising, I think, unsurprising implications of, of Christian sexual ethic, because we all kind of know it, we know it at least historically to have been true, is that sex is for marriage, Sex is practiced in the context of marriage. You wouldn't be surprised if you met a Christian and they told you that because Christians are known to have that opinion. Whether they practice it or not is, I guess, a different question. But historically, when we read the Bible, it kind of recommends that sex be just for marriage. I would say recommend is a soft way of saying that. (laughs) Insists. Um, And and because of that, you would think that today... um, Today, as, as, as I get in and talk about, because cause, cause we think about um, I'm sorry, I got off, off my notes there. Uh, yeah, so we, we, we know that sex is like, according to the Christian sexual ethic, it's for, it's for marriage alone, and because of that, you would think that today, in this first you know kind of focusing in on a topic, I would want to talk about, about marriage, not singleness, because that's where, you know, according to the Bible, we can, we can have sex, not, not when we're single, right? And, and typically. In the world of kind of Christians, that has been essentially the way we've approached this issue. Uh, The thinking is, well, so sex is for marriage, uh, and so uh, we had better work really hard to focus on marriage and get people married as quick as possible. Because if we don't, they're going to sin, and that's going to be a problem, right? So the emphasis when we talk about sex is we always talk about like, getting people into marriage as quickly as possible. Um, and there's been very little sense, at least in my experience of growing up, um, and literally in what the messages that I believed and then actually went and practiced, <laughs> um, there's very little emphasis on the, the value of, of, of singleness. The fact that singleness is, is a good thing. It's a, it's, a, it's a great thing. It's a commendable way to go through at least a good bit of your life. Typically, in the world of church, we don't treat it like that. But it's true, and scripturally, it's true that a person can thrive and be a whole and satisfied person as a single person. But we have not, I think, done a really good job of affirming that in the church um, and supporting people who are single. And it's, it's funny. It's funny because Christians say we're, we're really into the Bible but if we look at what the Bible says about this, it's, it's really clear. It is very clear that singleness is good. Paul talks about um, marriage a lot. He, 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 he uh, affirms the importance of marriage, but he also emphasizes the real value of singleness. And we see him do that in 1 Corinthians 7, 8 through 9. He says this, I say to the unmarried and to widows, it is good for them to remain as they are. But if they don't have self-control, they should marry, since it's better to marry than to burn with desire." The second part is an an important caveat, right? But what he's making clear is that it is good for single people to to remain single if they can handle that, if they can live life that way. Paul doesn't think of singleness the way we often think of it, which is just like a waiting room to get married. Like you come into a restaurant and they say, we don't have a table for you right now. Would you sit at the bar and meet somebody and then you could sit down, right? That's typically how we treat single people. But Paul says, no, look, You can sit right down. You can enjoy a feast. You can enjoy your life as a single person. It's okay. Paul saw that unmarried people actually had a major advantage in their life and in the spiritual life. And when we oftentimes don't think of that, we, we, we focus on the, the importance of marriage to our spiritual lives, the value of marriage to the detriment of singleness, but, but, but singleness is actually a, a, a valuable thing, something really good when it comes to your life, your spiritual life, your life with God. He, he goes on to explain it a little bit more, 1 Corinthians 7, 32, he says, I want you, to, this is his, his rationale for why singleness is good, because I want you to be without concerns. The unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. The unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, so that she may be, uh, be holy both in body and in spirit. But the married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. I'm saying these things to your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you but to promote what is proper so that you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. So Paul presents the possibility of a very good and satisfying and meaningful life as a single person. And we, we just have to like think about that and think about the way we think about singleness, whether you are single or not, and we need to have our view corrected by Scripture. Uh, but what, what Paul recognizes is that there is a, a good and, and a valuable way to be single. It's good, it is a good state of life because it enables a person to be singularly devoted to God. And I say that as a, as a married person. I definitely feel this. I have four children. Um, my job is to, you know, work here and to, to be concerned with the things of the Lord. And it is, it is a—I um, don't want to say my family is a distraction— <laughs> I, I can't say that. And I, and I really don't mean it, right? But, but to be honest, if I, were, if I had all the time in the world to devote to the, to the work of ministry, like, I would probably be able to do it better. And that's just a reality. That's not the calling that I have in my life. That's not the way I, I went about my life. That's, um, but I know a lot of actually uh, ministers who, who are. It's really funny, actually. There's a guy I follow in New York City. He's, he's probably a little bit older than me. He's, he's single, and he's like, He's doing this great thing, but you know what? It's really funny. Just to illustrate why, how Christians, um, how Christians are, and how we're sort of wrong about marriage. It's actually really hard if you're a single person to get hired as a pastor. Isn't that weird? When literally Paul says that's actually like the best way to do ministry. Like, like you would have you'd have more time available to yourself. That's just something to think about. The way that we really don't value singleness, and we really need to change our minds about that. That's a side. Sorry. Um, he, Paul commands the, the value of singleness that we can we can just be all about our relationship with the world, Lord and we can place our obedience and attentiveness on God above all things if we're single. And it's interesting because I, I think it needs to be said uh, it needs to be said that this, this good kind of life the kind of the kind of life that Paul is, is talking about according to the other teachings uh, about sex it comes at the expense of being able to express yourself sexually right? Singleness and celibacy, at least according to a biblical worldview, they go right together. Singleness entails celibacy. Now, the question that I think we need to to reckon with and really take seriously, we have to ask this question, is that really a good life? Is it a good life? Paul says it is, but what's the problem with it? Well, I think for people living in America in 2020, it doesn't, I think at least for most of us, sound like a good life. It could be, but it doesn't sound like it. Uh, the fact is that sex plays a really outsized role in our lives, in our thinking, and in our culture, this is just the world that we live in right now. And that's because we've made our culture, uh, because our culture has made sex really central to what it means to be a person. We live in a moment where that's certainly true. We've begun begun to believe that sexual expression is is totally essential to being a person. Uh, I I don't think I really need to defend that statement. If you wanna test it, go to Capitol Hill, wear a T-shirt that says, single people shouldn't have sex, and count how many bloody noses you have by the end of the day, okay? I, uh, that's, that's a joke. Don't do that. Um, that'd just be mean. Like, it's, just not, it's not necessary. Um, but I really do think in, in culture, we just, just believe this unquestioningly, and you know, I think we should think about it, um, that, that, that sex is so essential for happiness. And look, sex has always been, let's, let's be honest, but looking back at history, sex has always been important to people, okay? Right? Like everybody... been been doing this for a long time, right? Um, Sex has always been important for people. Since the beginning, uh, people have turned sex into like an essential, something that's very valuable. In the ancient world, kind of the world that Jesus lived in and and that the scriptures were written in, um, sex and worship were really connected. The pagan rituals uh, of of worship that went on in, in in the Roman world sex was actually a literal part of the way that they worshipped in those times. Sex has always been a part of the story that people have in terms of what makes life meaningful. Sex is important to people. It always has been. But interestingly, um, in the 1800s, as the Western world, the world that we live in, was becoming a secular place, like a non-religious place, we came up with some new ideas secular ideas, non-religious ideas about the value and importance of sex. And instead of couching sex in in religious ideas, like, like ancient people had always done, we started to enshrine the importance of sex in the science of psychology. This is just history. This is not, I don't think, up for for debate. Uh, Sigmund Freud, like you're probably uh, familiar with his name at least, he advanced a a secular evolutionary anthropology that emphasized the importance of sexual expression to, to being a person. He says this in Civilization and Its Discontents, man's discovery of sexual genital love afforded him the strongest experience of satisfaction and in fact provided him with a prototype of all happiness. That is a claim right there. And it must have suggested to him that he should continue to seek the satisfaction of happiness in his life along with, uh, with the path of, of sexual regulations. Uh, does this make grammatical sense? Did I miscopy this? I did type this, so... <sighs> Okay, I'm just going to try it again. Maybe it does make sense. Uh, he must have suggested to him that he could, uh, should continue to seek the satisfaction of happiness in his life along the path of sex, sexual re- regulations and that he, could, he should make uh, his genital eroticism the central point of his life. This is Sigmund Freud's view on the value of sex. And it's essentially a, a basic equation, sex equals happiness and not sex equals not happiness. That's essentially a a view of life that has built sex into what what, what makes you a person and what makes you a happy person. And while since his death, Freud's ideas have been pretty much discredited, nobody really takes Freud very seriously, this one idea has persisted. The question is, is it true? Do you have, is, is sex like so important that you couldn't be happy without it? Or beyond that, like, the, the question I think needs, needs to be asked, like whether you believe it or not, do you live like it's true? Because that's actually, I think, a better question. And the question really matters, because if we're, we're gonna take the, the Christian sexual ethics seriously, I think we have to understand that we are asking a lot of people. We're asking a lot of single people. It's, it's, it's asking a lot of a person not to have sex. And in the context of our culture, our beliefs about sex it certainly feels like we're asking a lot because if we in the background have these assumptions that we've been trained to believe that sex equals happiness then to ask people not to have sex we're asking them to be unhappy aren't we we're asking a lot and i don't really have a problem with affirming that yes we are asking a lot jesus is asking a lot of people to uh, to practice a, a sexual ethic jesus Jesus really was never uh, ashamed of asking people for things. He, he in fact, tells his disciples that they need to count the cost of being a disciple. It's going to cost you something to be uh, a disciple. But the question is, is it too much? Is it too much? At least for Jesus, it wasn't. Jesus actually lived a life, and and he shows that it isn't too much. Here's a little quote from Todd Wilson from his book, Uh, Mere Sexuality. He says, our culture is such that sexual activity is viewed as the most direct path to personal fulfillment and self-realization, to being a truly human and fully alive. So deep-seated is this belief that most people today think that to deny yourself sexual experiences is is to undermine your own humanity. But Jesus' life deconstructs this pervasive and powerful cultural myth. His life says something different. From the story of his life, we learn that sexual activity isn't essential to human flourishing or personal fulfillment. Jesus found contentment with his sexuality in pursuit of chastity and celibacy. To be blunt, he didn't need sex. Not because sex is sinful or somehow beneath his dignity, but because sex isn't essential to being a human being. That is sort of the underlying claim of all of this. Because if it is, then how, if it is essential for being a human being, then how could anyone ask us to not express our sexuality, to not, like, give in to whatever desires we have? Jesus shows us, because the way he lived his life as a unmarried, celibate, sinless man, who is fully man. Yeah, yeah, he's God, but he's fully man. Like an important understanding for us to understand is that Jesus like didn't have like, like he lowered himself. He took on the difficulties of being a person. He experienced all the temptations. That's what the book of Hebrews tells us. He experienced all the temptations that we've experienced. All the things that we go through, he he bore those burdens. All the ways that it is to be a person, he lived in those same ways. Jesus shows us more than anything what it means to live a full life and Jesus went his whole through his whole life as a full person without sex. Because at least according to the Bible, sex is not what makes us whole. It's not the be-all, end-all of meaning and essential part of who we are. I like how um, Jamie Smith, James, James K. Smith, a philosopher, explains it. He says, the problem isn't sex, it's what I expect from sex. <laughs> The problem isn't promiscuity or whatever, like, you know, just, just whatever, <laughs> failure to obey the sexual ethic. The, pro- the problem with, with promiscuity isn't just that it transgresses the law or that it chews up other people and spits them out as leftovers, which it does. It, it's not simply the fact that it hollows me out and reduces me to my organs and glands, all as a perverted way to feed a soul-hunger. The baseline problem with promiscuity is that it doesn't work, and it's doomed to fail. And I I really think that this is like the Christian claim about sex. It's important, it's affirmed in the context of marriage, but it's not going to fill your need for meaning. It's not going to give you meaning in life. The Bible is, is for sex. It's really celebrates sex in the context of marriage. We'll talk about that next week. Look forward to it. Uh, but sex is not actually a thing that we need. Sex in the context of marriage serves the great purpose of uniting two people, but it is not in and of itself the basis for happiness. Sex will not satisfy our deepest human needs, not even in marriage by the way, and when we treat it like it will, we make it into an idol, something that promises, over-promises and under-delivers. It's a good definition of an idol, and it's going to disappoint us. You can live, everyone in this room can live a meaningful, purposeful life as a single person, as a celibate person. God's promises are such that that is not necessary And in fact, not only that, it is a very high calling for some. You could spend your whole life as a single person and have it be satisfying and a dignified and awesome kind of life where you get to know the Lord more and serve Him. Or you could spend a a part of your life as a single person, you know, praying that the Lord would bring a spouse to you at some point. And as you wait, you can live in an honorable, dignified, satisfying kind of way in your body. And that's a good life. That is not a wasted life. It is a good life. Those are not wasted years. You're not sitting in the waiting room waiting for the real thing to happen. There is life in this moment of waiting. That's what the Bible teaches us about what it means to have a a body and to have desires that we can handle that stuff and still have a meaningful life. But that said... I do think it's worth noting that the single life is a life that costs something. Certainly, it feels like it does, but it doesn't need to cost you your happiness. But it does come with some requirements. I mean, you know, um, if you're going to live a thriving, happy life as a single person, it's going to require some things. The first thing it's going to require, and this is sort of implied, but let's just make it clear, it's going to require some self-control. It's going to require self-control, right? Because the fact is that it's very likely that you as a single person, a person who is, is, is trying to honor God in your singleness, are going to experience desire, It's very likely. Although, frankly, some people don't, and that's okay. <laughs> some people actually do not have strong sexual desires. That doesn't make you strange. That actually probably makes you like a lot of people, and that's okay. But many who are single, are going to feel sexual desire and it's going to require self control. We need to remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, Flee sexual immorality for every other sin a person commits outside of the body uh, is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. This is why this matters. Why do Christians make such a big deal about sex? It's kind of a trope at this point, right? But it's because of this. It's because we believe that God created us, not just as a, a spirit detached from our bodies, but people who are embodied. We go through life in this body, and God has bought us at a price. He's put his Holy Spirit in us. We're not our own any longer. We're called to be people who who worship Him, who glorify Him, who live our whole lives just seeking out His presence. You have a calling that is so much greater than just satisfying sexual desire. You have a calling to bring your whole self to God, and that's just going to require some self-control. called to live and worship God as whole selves. And yeah, it's going to require self-control. And that's true whether you're married or or you're single. You're going to need self-control in your life. We all of us go through life experiencing desire. Sometimes it's sexual, sometimes it's other things. We always need self-control in this life. And in order to develop self-control, okay, we just need to, first of all, we need to know we need it, we need to know we want it, and then we need to, second of all, just walk with God in the middle of our life. Uh, God makes so many promises about how we can go through life and deal with strong desires and yet still honor him. He says in, uh, Paul says in First Corinthians ten thirteen, no temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity, but God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. We can stand on that promise. That's really funny. I think I learned that when I was a young man, and I had forgotten about how awesome that little promise is from Scripture, um, because it's what God is saying is that, look, like, yeah, you're going to go through life. You're going you're to experience temptations as you go along, but the promise is not that, you can be strong enough. You can muscle through. Like You can find strength that you didn't know you have. The promise is God's going to meet you right there in the middle of the difficulty, in the middle of the struggle. God's going to provide you a way out. He's going to provide you strength you don't have. He's going to provide you a way to honor him. He's going to bring that to mind. In other words, like we're not going on this path of self-control on our own. Uh, whenever it comes to how we're going to honor God, we are, we are walking with him. And that is such a better way to try to do something. To do something with God's strength, in his strength, by his strength, is so much better than me trying to muscle through on my own because I'm not sure if you've noticed I'm not very strong. I've given up the whole idea of being strong. So. <laughs> um, but I mean, I, I, that's true in my physical life. but It's also true in my spiritual life too. You know, Honestly, like, I don't need to be stronger. I need to look to God who is providing a way of escape, who's providing a way out. Self-control, I think more than anything, is saying, no, I'm going to stop, stop with this desire. I'm going to understand I have a better calling, and then I'm going to look for God who is working in my life right now. Not who's distant, not who like, calls me to be a super athlete, super strong person, but the God who's present with me, who's, who, who, who goes with me, who, who, who knows my difficulties and the difficulties that I have in life and walks with me in them so much better, I think, way of trying to be self-controlled is to know and to try to look for God working in my everyday life. Second, and, and this is, I think, probably the most important point, uh, if I'm going to um, follow Jesus, I mean, I'm going I'm to try to like, live uh, as a single person successfully, it will require intimacy, just not sexual intimacy, <laughs> It will require intimacy. Intimacy really is important. It is easy to make an idol of sex because we all have a legitimate need for intimacy. And sex pretends to satisfy that for a little while. But it doesn't satisfy it in the end. This is a great little quote from Sam Albury. I like this one. Within all of us, there's a deep yearning to know and to be known. Yes. <laughs> it can sometimes feel as though sex will deliver this. It seems to be a means of exposing who we are to someone else. After all, older generations used to use the language of knowing as a way to speak of having sex. But divorced from, the real, from real relationships, sex may be a form of physical intimacy, but only that. It will not provide the deeper intimacy we need in life. It is possible to have lots of sex and no real intimacy. This is the good news. (laughs) But the reverse is also true. It is possible to have a lot of intimacy in life and for none of it to be sexual. Sexual and romantic relationships are not the only ones of, of genuine, genuine life-giving closeness. We need to rediscover a biblical category of intimacy that has been neglected in our cultural context and, sadly, even in many of our churches' friendship. I, I, we are so seeped in a culture of independence in America, right? And I, I love this country. I'm, I'm glad I live here. But we have some things we need to work on. <laughs> That's okay. And I think this is one, and I think this is really true. Even as a married person, we are not good at being friends. We are not good at being friends except for with our spouses. That's where we think our, all of our friend energy needs to be directed to our spouses. And yes, you should be friends with your spouse. Wonderful. Yes, great best friend even maybe. But I actually don't think, I, I. don't think I'm my wife's best friend. I think she has better friends than me. I don't think I have better friends than her. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just me. It's uh, something I need to work on. Um, singleness does not have to mean loneliness. It doesn't have to mean loneliness. It shouldn't mean loneliness. And, and more than, we, we need to work on this as, uh, as churches and as our church. I mean, I think we're such a friendly church. Like, so many people get to connect here. It's great. Um, and, I, and I think we do a pretty good job, probably better than most churches, of, of connecting with single people, but we've, we've got room to grow. We've got room to grow. We need to understand why it matters. It's not just because it's nice. It's because there's a better hope in life than just sexual intimacy. We were made for relationship, and it's good, and it's valuable. So just some thoughts about how we can, can practice this. Uh, I've got a little, little, I don't know, a chart, things that you can do if you're single, things that you can do if you're married. Um, if you're single, single, number one, you can just know you need intimacy. It's good to just admit that. It's good to just say, Yeah, actually, I am created and I do need intimacy. I need emotional intimacy. I need connection with people. That's a good thing. God made you that way. Don't act like it's not true. Um, If you're married, just set an extra place at your table, as in, invite someone, especially a single person, to dinner. Do it on the regular. It's a simple way. Just like, like connect with people. people. Make them a part of your family. And then for both people, single and married people, ask good questions. I think part of what, why we don't... You guys know the Seattle freeze, right? You know, like, like this, we, we basically need to just undo that. We need to, to create places where we, can, where we can connect with people. We need to learn to ask good questions and get to know people. I have a, I have a card deck of questions. I've memorized a lot of them. They're really helpful. They come in handy sometimes. Um, I think we need to learn the art of getting to know people and sharing life with with people and learning intimacy. That's what we're kind of doing in our small groups right now, actually, just focusing on just getting to know each other, asking and and, and, uh, uh, talking through difficult questions. But we need to learn this. This is a skill that is learned. Friendship, intimacy, getting to know people is a skill that's learned. Ask good questions of people. Um, And if you're single, you can develop rhythms of connection. I think that's really helpful. Whenever I'm trying to change a habit or, or anything like that, having a rhythm in my week kind of to keep me focused on it, that's valuable. Connect with people on a regular basis that you like. And then if you're married, like, avoid the marriage family vortex. I mean, not that it's bad. Not that it's bad to have family. But reach out past, past it. Reach out to people. Text them. Call them. Get to know people. So make, make time in your life for, for people who are, are single or, um, you know, at a different stage of life than you are. These are really just just practical things. But they really matter for us if we're going to really um, hold up and be the sort of community where everyone is able to um, connect and have their emotional needs met. We should work on this as a matter of, of priority, as a matter of um, just being uh, serious about what it means to follow the Lord. And that kind of connects with my, my third and final point. Um, that's that this is going to require worship. This is going to require worship. Um, worship team can come on up appropriately. Um, I just want to read Ephesians 4, a little bit of Ephesians 4. It says this, Speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love. And by the proper working of each individual part, be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of truth. Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one, to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. I think that we think of worship, we tend to think of worship almost disembodied, like it's a spiritual thing between me and God. I think it is that. But I think that God is really concerned about the context of our lives. The way that we live them, the community, then the connections that we have. And God has, God has called people out of lostness, right? Out of not knowing him. And then what he does is he doesn't say, and then I'm just going to have this like spiritual connection between you and me is no, I'm gonna yeah put my Holy Spirit in you, and then I'm gonna take your life, and then I'm gonna put it in the context of a community, of people, where each are members one of another, where we're called to speak the truth in love and grow into every like one who is the head, and from him like are fitted together, knit together by the supporting ligaments that promotes the growth of the body for the building of itself in love. The life that you live as a person who worships God is, is a life in the context of a Christian community. You're not just called to just go, oh, okay, now just go and off into the desert and just worship me because it's just a spiritual connection. It's to, we're called and placed in a family of believers and we're called to worship in this context where we're concerned about everybody growing up together, coming to full maturity together. Where we were called to love and build all the parts up, not just the married parts, but everyone, every person, every person. Caring, honoring the Lord, growing up into full maturity, every person having like this new life, this life overflowing, living in their, in the, in their lives where, where they're having intimacy and they're able to love each other and care for each other and to exercise self-control and to honor God and to be like a type of community that the world looks at and just says, I might not agree with what they're saying, but boy, do they love each other. Boy, do they care about each other seems like those people actually might have something figured out after all that's worship that's worship that's kind of the true worship a worship that worship that's not just vertical but it's also horizontal it plays out in that way worship isn't just me and jesus it's it's us and jesus and so like we're going to t- talk about like how do we support single people and how do single people like you know have this this full and meaningful life and, and understanding the difficulties that come along it. With it, it, it really worship matters. Worship matters. Worship matters for everybody. Well, that's all I have to say this morning. Next week we're going to talk about uh, the marriage. Like I said, um, I was told I shouldn't talk about how awkward it is because it just makes it awkward. So you'll just have to come and find out. Lord, thank you for these people. Thank you for this community, God. God, give us a vision to see how good it is to walk with you, I pray. How good it is to be brothers and sisters, family, to care about each other, to flourish together. Amen. Why don't we stand together? We'll just close out the service, some worship.